Well, good morning, Green Pond. It is a joy uh, to be with you here. I, I do want to send um, my greetings from the, the team at uh, Gulf Theological Seminary. I know many of you are familiar with uh, what we do already. Dr. Adam Brown has come and, and uh, he's preached for you before. And so uh, I get to partner with uh, Dr. Brown and others to train up men and women from the Middle East and from around the Middle East and the global south uh, with world-class theological education uh, so that we can, Lord willing, one day send them back to their home countries to plant uh, churches in those needy places. And so uh, it's been gratifying for my wife and I and, and our three children to live there for this past year. Um, so I do have to send my greetings uh, on, on behalf of my wife, Shannon, she could not be here with you today. I, I have been so authorized with the permission to let you know that she's pregnant with our fourth child, and uh, she is in the throes of that first trimester uh, morning sickness. And so, uh, so it crushed her, though, to, to not be able to come because uh, Green Pond really does mean so much uh, to us. You guys are very dr- generous uh, with your support, but also uh, we feel really loved by this congregation. Um, just this past year, uh, Pastor TJ and... Uh, Pastor Ryan were able to make their way out to the UAE to Dubai, and then they spent a, a day in Abu Dhabi and visited with uh, my family, and we really felt uh, cared for and uh, checked in on and uh, really supported by them. And so uh, it's been a blessing to partner with you uh, for this past year in, in the ministry, and uh, I've been really impressed just by the intentionality and the care of this congregation to really care for uh, her missionaries. And so um, I'm very thankful for that, and, uh, and I hope that you all, as we, uh, as, as we continue to give you updates and, uh, and you learn about the exciting things that the Lord is doing uh, at our seminary, I hope that you all celebrate as, uh, as if it is a shared venture in uh, ministry, because that's exactly what it is. And so, um, very thankful to be with you, and I'm also thankful to preach uh, within an ongoing sermon series. I always prefer uh, to have a text assigned to me, which uh, is something that uh, my wife doesn't necessarily appreciate because that means whenever we come, you know, home, I can't just recycle sermons at the various chur- churches that we go to. So it's a little bit more work for me, but I love it, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the chance to preach in this ongoing sermon series through the book of Matthew. So if you haven't turned there, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, and um, we will continue on in this study that you've all been uh, on journeying through the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. I'm going to read our text uh, this morning. I'm reading from the ESV. I think it's different than, than your translation. So you can kind of compare and contrast this as I'm reading. So I'm going to read Matthew uh, 8, verses 18 through 22, and uh, say one more word of prayer and ask for the Lord's help as we begin our study uh, this morning. So uh, let's, let's read these words together. Matthew 8, 18, these are the words of God. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Let's pray. Our triune God, we thank you for another Lord's Day to gather together and worship you. 
to respond to your call uh, to worship. Well, Father, we thank you for uh, sending your Son in our likeness to purchase our reconciliation and to win our hearts back uh, to yourself. Lord Jesus, we thank you for abhorring not the virgin's womb, for coming in our flesh, in our needy flesh, to live and die and rise and ascend for us so that we can know you and love you, to atone for our sins. Holy Spirit, we thank you for taking up residency within us to remake us and renew us and make us new creatures uh, with new desires that love you and desire to worship you. So our triune God, we worship you this morning. You, your word says, seek my face, and we respond, your face, Lord, do we seek. And I ask now that you take the five loaves and two fish of this sermon that I've prepared, and I ask that you multiply it in only a way that you can do. Would you water the hearts of those who hear your word now so that the seed sown in my weakness may be raised in your power? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. On that passage that I just read, Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, the 19th century Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote these words, Nothing, in fact, has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession and talk fluently of his experience. It has been painfully forgotten that numbers alone do not make strength and that there may be a great quantity of mere outward religion while there is very little real grace. Let us remember this. Let us keep back nothing from young professors and inquirers after Christ. Let us not enlist them on false pretenses. Let us tell them plainly that there is a crown of glory at the end. But let us tell them no less plainly that there is a daily cross along the way. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a, a disciple of Christ? This morning, in this morning's passage... Jesus is going to disabuse us of a couple of misconceptions that we may have about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. These are very common misconceptions about what it means to follow Jesus. The first misconception is this idea that following Jesus is something that we ought to hastily commit to without deliberation or intention. This is what we might call easy believism or decisionalism. You say, just make a decision for Christ. Don't think about it. Just come. Just make a decision for Christ. Just do it quickly. So that's one misconception. The other misconception is the assumption that following Jesus is something that can be tailored around our personal preferences. This is the idea that we can simply follow Jesus when it is convenient for us. One biblical commentator called these two responses from this passage the error of a hasty profession and the error of delayed obedience. Too quick to promise and too slow to obey. These are the errors that Jesus is going to confront us about in this passage this morning. So let's let him do that. Look with me again at verse 18 from Matthew chapter 8. It says this, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why does he decide to get away from the crowds when they're coming to him? Well, we have to remember what just came before. 
Uh, This crowd was occasioned by the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And so as word spread and uh, Jesus healed uh, about how Jesus had healed her, um, many people were coming to Jesus. And many uh, brought their sick and those who were oppressed by demons. And Jesus healed all of them. And so it's possible uh, at this point that Jesus is just tired. So he sees a crowd coming and he's already spent emotionally, physically. He's exhausted. And so he just gets to the other side. He needs some time to reprieve. But I'm not sure that's exactly why Jesus goes to the other side to get away from the crowd. I don't think that's why. I think, I tend to agree with some commentators who suggest that perhaps Jesus is testing the sincerity of their commitment to him. You see, Jesus can't be parsed out into uh, different bits so that we can keep the parts of him that appeal to us, we can keep the parts of him that we like, and we can disregard the parts that we don't like. Jesus, we can't do that with Jesus. Jesus is, truly is, he is the one who heals our infirmities. He took our illness and bore our diseases, as Matthew says in verse 18, just the verse prior to this, when he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. So Jesus really is that one. He, he heals our infirmities. He heals our diseases. But he doesn't do so as a genie or as a hired hand. He does so as Lord. He is our Lord. He wants us to come to him with our sicknesses, with all of our sicknesses. And the gravest sickness that we have is our sin-sick hearts. He heals us of that infirmity in part by calling us to follow him with our whole being. Now, it's easy for us to come to him if what he offers is physical healing, right? It's easy for us to come to him if that is what he's offering, but what if he asks us for more? What if, he's, what if he's offering to heal us from something deeper, something far more profound than any sort of physical healing? What if our need is actually greater? So Jesus goes to the other side to test the crowds, to see who really wants to follow Christ, who really wants true healing from Christ, the most important kind of healing. Now, this might be a bit of a generous interpretation, say, Dr. Sam, you're really reading into uh, one little verse here, verse 18. Is there warrant for thinking that that's what's going on here? And I think that the context of Jesus' interaction with the scribe here in this next verse uh, lends credence to this idea that Jesus is concerned about the sincerity of those who are following him. So he says this in verse uh, 19. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus departs from the crowd, and here is one who expresses a willingness and a desire to follow Jesus. This is one who wants to become one of his disciples. So this should be encouraging, right? And yet Jesus' response is a little bit jarring, isn't it? He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Essentially... As this scribe comes to him and says, I'm going to follow you wherever you go, Jesus' response is essentially him saying, are you sure? Are you sure you're going to follow me wherever I go? Because it's not easy to follow the Son of Man. To follow Jesus is to make peace with the reality that this present world is not our lasting home. The point Jesus is making here is far more than a matter of historical fact. It's not just that he's saying... 
2,000 years ago, when Jesus was in his earthly pilgrimage heading towards the crucifixion, it would have been difficult to follow him because he was uh, on the road of constant travel and, and restlessness, though that is certainly true. He's not saying something that only applies to 2,000 years ago during his earthly ministry. No, he's rather communicating a paradigm for what it means to follow Jesus from now until Christ returns to make all things new. We are not at home here. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. We're aliens. We are exiles marching on towards our heavenly homeland. To follow Jesus is to accept this life of potential deprivation. To follow Jesus is to accept that there are no promises for any safety or any security or any permanence in this life. Because all the safety and security and permanence is in the next. Which means that we should not follow him flippantly. We should count the cost. That's what Jesus invites the scribe here to do. Now, we should, we should recognize, we should acknowledge that Jesus' response does seem to have a little bit of a hint of rebuke in it. Right? It sounds as if the scribe is being confronted with an inconvenient reality that he hadn't factored in before he hastily committed to follow Jesus wherever Jesus goes. So Jesus is saying, you're, you're, not, you're not thinking very carefully here. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you sure? Are you sure that you really want to follow Jesus? So he is confronting the scribe here, but I think that we should also acknowledge that this response by Jesus is not a rejection of the scribe. He's free to follow Jesus. He really can follow Jesus so long as he doesn't do so under the presumption that following Jesus would be easy. This is going to become important later on. So we'll return to that point later on. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, many commentators have twisted themselves into knots trying to rescue Jesus from what they perceive to be an overly harsh reply to this disciple. The idea is, if this guy just wants to go and and oversee a funeral of his recently deceased dad, um, then Jesus' response would be way too mean. It would be way too harsh. So something else must be going on here. And so they'll try to make a case that this phrase, let me go and bury my father, signified something like, I'm not ready to move out of my dad's house yet, right? So this is just a guy who has failure to launch. Like, he's not going to follow Jesus because he's, he's too lazy or something like that. Um, so, so they'll say, uh, some commentators will suggest, in other words, that the father uh, may have still been alive and well, and so this disciple isn't simply asking for a short trip to attend to his late father's funeral, but rather to potentially live with his father for years before following Jesus. Or they'll say uh, something like this disciple is uh, maybe expressing his plan to wait to follow Jesus. He's going to wait to follow Jesus until his father dies and passes on his inheritance so it wouldn't cost him so much. It It wouldn't be so costly to follow Jesus. And so maybe, just maybe, this disciple was being greedy. And if that's the case... Uh, Jesus' harsh words were maybe called for. That's the idea of of these different uh, explanations of what's going on here. 
But I don't buy any of that. I don't think that Jesus actually wants to be rescued here. His words, I think, are intended to be a bracing shock. Now, whether this man's father was still alive or not, it's always sobering and a little jarring to hear somebody say, don't bury him. Don't bury your dad. Dead people bury dead people. You follow me and you leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's jarring under any circumstance. So what could Jesus possibly mean with something so stark as this? Well, again, I think the point is Jesus wants this disciple to count the cost. But where the scribe's error was to hastily agree to follow Jesus without sincere consideration, this disciple's error was in the error of delaying his obedience. And we shouldn't miss, Matthew calls him a disciple which means he had already counted the cost and had already agreed to follow Christ. And so this point may be sharp, but the principle that Jesus articulates in this passage is clear enough. Jesus does not want our half-hearted devotion. He wants entire, unreserved, absolute devotion. And this is not the only time Jesus makes this point. This is actually a feature that we see all throughout the Gospels. Consider this passage. You think that that passage that we just read was harsh? Consider this passage from uh, Luke chapter 14 when Jesus says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build the tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, I think Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. He's not going to contradict the Ten Commandments that say, honor your father and mother. So he's not, he's not contradicting that. He's speaking in hyperbole. And it's a comparison here. He's saying, compared to your love for me, your love for everything else should look like hatred. In comparison to your love for me. And so in all of these ways, Jesus is attacking a very particular kind of idolatry. And it is this this idolatry which is a failure to acknowledge the all-surpassing worth of Christ. I say all-surpassing, meaning his worth surpasses all else. It beats all else. It laps all else. To treat him as if he could be followed at our own convenience. This is an error. He doesn't want a rash, emotional, hasty commitment. Nor does he want a non-committal, half-hearted interest. He wants deliberate, whole, worshipful devotion. Those are his terms. And if we don't come to him on those terms, if we don't come to him on those terms, we don't take him at all. Why? Because he is Lord of all. And you cannot have the Lord of all 
as being Lord of short of anything, but all. He's either Lord of all or he isn't. Now, this is simple enough, but what I want to know is, the question I want to pose to you is, does this sermon and does this passage contradict Pastor Ryan's sermon preached last month from Matthew chapter 7? Now, I know most of you here uh, have all of the sermons and all of the passages that Pastor Ryan has ever preached memorized, and so you don't need my help to jog your memory. But for people like me and those who are like me, let me go ahead and jog your memory. Several weeks ago, Pastor Ryan preached a sermon from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, which says this, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you If his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So that sounds like a different tune than the passage that we're reading today, right? And what Pastor Ryan rightly uh, said, the point that, that Pastor Ryan made much of rightly in that sermon was Jesus's grand generosity, the Trinity's grand generosity. He asks, what must you do to enter into the kingdom of Christ? Ask, and you can enter into the kingdom of Christ. Christ, according to that passage, Matthew 7, is brimming with grace and generosity and is eager to grant it to anyone who would ask. But in our passage today, This morning, it looks like the scribe is asking. It looks like he's seeking. It looks like he's knocking, doesn't it? And it looks like he's getting snubbed. So what's going on here? Is Jesus just playing emotional games with us? Is he giving us a promise with one hand that he takes back with the other? Now, obviously, the answer to that is no. You see, the invitation that Jesus extends in Matthew chapter 7 and elsewhere in the Gospels is genuine. It's a genuine invitation. Ask, seek, knock. You will have it. Christ really is bursting at the seams, eager to pour out grace and to welcome you into his kingdom. That's what he's after. But what exactly is he inviting us to ask him for? What does he want us to ask him for? Is he inviting us to ask him to make him a mere accessory in our lives? An accidental add-on? that we can discard and receive without any real consequences, without any real changes to our lives. No, that's not what he asks us to ask him for. He invites us to ask him for himself. And there is no having, there is no having Jesus as a mere accessory. Either we have him as the sovereign master over our lives, or we don't have him at all. We cannot have the benefits of Christ without having Christ himself. That's the idea. Now, I love the way that C.S. Lewis illustrates this principle in his fantasy novel from the Chronicles of Narnia, The Silver Chair. Any, anybody here familiar with the, the Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, I see some hands. <coughs> well, in this book, in The Silver Chair, I'm not going to give away too much of the story, but one character is a, a little girl named Jill Pole. And she finds herself incredibly thirsty. 
and uh, she, she hears the rippling of a stream, so she approaches the stream, and she's about to uh, drink this stream and quench her thirst when she sees a big lion in front of the stream. Now, obviously, this is the lion. This is Aslan. This is the Christ figure in these novels, but she doesn't know anything about Aslan. Uh, all she knows is that it's a lion in front of the stream that she was about to drink from, so obviously, she's terrified, and to her great astonishment, he speaks to her. And after overcoming the initial shock, she has a conversation with this talking lion. And this is the uh, conversation that Lewis describes for us. I'm going to read this conversation in its entirety, and you'll see uh, where, I'm, where I'm getting at. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Before she had tasted it, she had been intending to make a dash away from the lion the moment she had finished. But now, standing between his paws, she realized that this would be, on the whole, the most dangerous thing of all. Jesus will not let us have his benefits without having himself. Can you just go away from the stream, from your stream, so I can get your benefits without you standing nearby? And the response that we get from Jesus in a passage like this is a very low growl. No, Jesus will not let us have his benefits without having himself. And the reason, the reason that these terms in Matthew chapter 8 don't contradict what Christ said about his generosity in Matthew chapter 7 and elsewhere is that Christ, as the sovereign master over our lives, is the best thing for us. Our Father will not uh, withhold good gifts from us when we ask. He won't give us a stone when we ask for bread. He won't give us a snake when we ask for fish. But friends, this is the point. That is precisely what he would be doing if he gave us the blessings of Christ apart from giving us Christ himself. The blessings of Christ detached from Christ himself. Friends, the blessings of Christ detached from Christ himself is no blessing at all. 
That is not a good deal. Consider these illustrative parables from Matthew chapter 13. We're going to see, you're going to see later on in, in the gospel of Matthew, a cluster of parables in Matthew chapter 13. And this is two of them. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is what it means to give Christ your entire life and following him. It's not a loss. It's not a loss. If we think it is, if we think that Jesus is contradicting himself when he says, ask and it will be given in chapter 7, and let the dead bury their own dead in chapter 8, if we think that that is a contradiction, it is because we have not yet grasped the all-surpassing value of Christ. If we have Christ, we have everything. The man who sells his field, to, to, who sells everything to buy the field for the treasure in it, doesn't sell everything that he has reluctantly. He does it, the text says, in great joy because what he gains is worth infinitely more than anything else that he has or ever could have. I think no one in the New Testament articulates this truth more beautifully than the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 when he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's not saying that everything is a waste intrinsically. He's saying everything is lost compared to having Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Psalm 16 says that in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so when Jesus says to us that he does not want our half-hearted devotion, that he will not have our hasty promises and self-preferential delays of obedience, it's not because he's reluctant to give us good things. It's precisely the opposite. He wants to give us fullness of joy. He wants to give us pleasures forevermore, which is not accessible in a Christ of our own making. That kind of joy is not accessible anywhere but at his right hand. To have him as our Lord. Who is this man who makes such grand demands? Like, where does he get off? Who is this one who can make such grand demands on our lives? He is the one who is the sovereign creator and sustainer of heaven and earth. He is the one who eternally exists in glory, who is one with the Father and the Spirit in being and in majesty and authority and power and holiness and beauty. He is the Son of God who, without ceasing to be God, became man to reconcile man to God once more. He is the one who assumed our human flesh, our human killable nature, so that he could atone for our sin and earn a righteousness for us to bear. This is the one who came, who became a man, so that we could approach the holy of holies through the divine mediation of his perfection. This is the one who died on the cross and thereby defeated Satan. 
How did he defeat Satan? By dying on the cross. He defeated Satan by stripping Satan from the only weapon that he had that was worth any value, which was the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He took that record and he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. That's how he defeats Satan. This is the one who was buried in the grave. Why, did, why was he buried in the grave? He was buried in the grave to extend his victory, not only in heaven and not only in earth, but also under the earth in the land of the dead. He is the Lord over all. He's the one who snatched the keys to death in Hades as he bursted out of the grave, blazing for us a trail of resurrection for us to follow him in. This is the one who ascended into the heavens to be coronated as the Davidic king and sovereign ruler over all, who has all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And this is the one who will return to make all things new. That's the one who invites us to come to him with a single-minded, wholehearted devotion. And if we do, we get all of him, all of that one for us. That missionary, Jim Elliott, famously put the matter appropriately when he said, he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, I'd like to conclude our time together with two biblical charges from this text. The first is for the believers among us this morning, and the second is for anyone who might happen to be here who is not yet a follower of Jesus. The first biblical charge is this, Christian. You're charged to learn to embrace the pilgrim identity. Learn to embrace the pilgrim identity. If you are a follower of Christ, you follow the one who had no place to lay his head during his earthly pilgrimage here 2,000 years ago. He has not called his disciples, he has not called his disciples to a life of comfort in this present world. He has called us to a life that includes hardship in it but one that is full of joy. It's full of joy. And it's full of joy not only because it is a life of hope in precious promises. We do get joy as we contemplate the precious promises of the future that we're waiting for. The hope of everlasting life and the new heavens and the new earth and glory as we commune with him in unimaginable delight and enjoyment where our capacity for joy will expand forever with our satisfaction and delight expanding in exact proportion. Further up and further in, expansion of joy forever. That's what we have to look forward to in heaven. And so our life here is full of joy in part because of what we're hoping for in heaven. But it's not only that. It's also full of joy right now because the, the, the hope of that future is also ours in part in the present now. The same one that we will delight to behold by glorified vision in heaven is the one that we are invited to behold by faith now. We behold him by faith. You've been doing it as I've been preaching. I've been doing it as I've been preaching and I pray you've been doing it as you've been preaching. You've been beholding Christ by faith, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we're pilgrims. We are pilgrims here on this earth, but we're not ordinary pilgrims. Like the Israelites who sojourned through the wilderness with the tabernacle. They brought the tabernacle with them. This is the meeting place with God in his glory. Like the Israelites who journeyed through the wilderness with the presence of God with them, So we also are sojourners who enjoy 
the present fellowship of our glorious God right now. We have him. And friends, once we grasp that, once we grasp that reality that we have the presence of God with us right now, and we will have him forever, then we can begin to consider our lives on this earth as expendable. Now, I don't pretend to know what the Lord has been doing in your own life on the individual or personal level. I don't pretend to know what God is doing in your life or what he may be calling you to. But I will say that Jesus is worthy of your undying and unflinching devotion, whatever it is, whatever God has been calling you to. Now, God knows what that looks like in your life personally. He doesn't call everybody to do the same thing. He doesn't call everybody to sell their possessions and move overseas. He doesn't call everyone to go to the frontier missionary field of a closed country like my friends Hayden or Tyler to go preach the gospel where the name of Jesus is not known. He doesn't call everybody to sell their possessions and give to charity. But he does call for everyone to be willing to do anything that he asks. Because he calls us to be under his benevolent lordship. If he is Lord, then he lays rightful claim to our hopes and our plans for the future. He does. It belongs to him. He gets to have dibs on whatever our plans are for the future. So regardless, regardless of what the spirit of Christ may be stirring up in your own life, and without pretending to know exactly what you may be thinking of as I'm describing this, you know, thing to you, hear me say with all the authority of God's word, nothing is so important as to keep you from following Jesus with absolute unreserved devotion. Just do it. It Just... Whatever, whatever it is, whatever the Spirit has been stirring up in your heart to do, and you are, you are a little bit like the disciple of this passage, and you say, no, let me first do this. Let me bury my, my father. Do it. Do it. He's worth it. And if I could just speak to those who are younger among us today, uh, maybe you're in grade school or high school or uh, the, the beginning years of college, perhaps, I want to say that this charge is for you as well. This charge is for you as well. Now, for me, growing up in a Christian household, it was very easy in those adolescent years of my life and the early adulthood years of my life for me to put off absolute devotion to Christ. I would say something along the lines of, sure, I'm a Christian. I am a Christian. I believe what my parents and my church have told me. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that. And eventually... I'll start living for him in a really on fire kind of way. That was the the language that I used. I'm going to be on fire for Jesus eventually. I'll be a devoted Christian. I'll be an extreme Christian. But right now, there's just a few areas of my life that I'm just not ready to submit entirely to him yet. My friend group, my entertainment choices, my romantic relationships. These are all things that I will honor Christ with eventually... But right now, I'm just going to do the things that I want to do. But friends, I was fooling myself. I thought that Christ could be trifled with, and I was wrong. I thought that he could have the leftovers of my life and still be honored by that. And I was wrong. He will not be mocked. Don't think that you honor him at all. By withholding whole segments of your life from his claim to lordship. 
if we ask him if we can have a bit of his benefits, like his benefit of the forgiveness of our sins, without submitting to his lordship, if we ask him if we can have his benefits without him, then his answer is something like Aslan's low growl. No. So my invitation to you, my friends, is to quit playing around. Don't hastily commit to following Jesus without counting the cost, like the scribe in our passage today, but also don't delay offering him your whole life without reserve, like the disciple in our passage today. Count the cost and realize that following Christ without reserve is infinitely better than sitting on the fence trying to negotiate how much of your life you will entrust over to Christ's authority. That is a very uncomfortable situation to be in. I, I, I stayed in that position for a long time, and it's not a good place to be in. So get off the fence. He's better than that. He's more worthy than that. This world, in its present form, if you're a Christian, is not your home. You are a pilgrim here, so you should live like it. So that's the first charge. Learn to embrace the pilgrim identity. The second charge is to anyone who happens to be here who may have not yet trusted in Christ yet. And the invitation is to count the cost and follow Jesus. It's not easy. It's not easy, friends. It's not easy to be a Christian. You, can't, you aren't promised that. You're not promised that it's easy to be a Christian. So do, in fact, count the cost of being a disciple. You know, don't be hasty. Count the cost. Consider. But as you do so, as you count the cost, you must factor in this all-important detail. Jesus Christ is infinitely worthy of your wholehearted devotion. So this is how you count the cost. All the difficult things that, that may come to me for following Jesus, all the things that I might have to give up, my, my own ambitions, my own uh, fleshly desires, my own um, sinful habits, all of these things I got to give up. It's kind of heavy. The worth of Christ. Dunk. Like that's how it should work. If we see him for who he truly is, that's how this cost cost uh, weighing analysis is going to work out. Jesus Christ is infinitely worthy of your wholehearted devotion. More worthy, in fact, than anything else you give your life to. And so the good news for you, if you're not a Christian yet, the good news for you is that you cannot come to him on your own terms. That's good news. Now, I know it doesn't sound like it's good news, but let me explain why it is good news. It's good news because if you were to come to him, if your reconciliation with God depended on your own terms, then you would hatch this, this uh, weird plan where uh, you, you sort of have this uh, elaborate give and take and uh, you would ultimately fall short of your own um, uh, requirement and you would most assuredly lowball the benefits that he could give you. You're not going to ask for too much because you don't think that you can do too much. So you're going to say, okay, I'll give a little bit of my life and I'll just get a little bit of his benefits. So you're going to lowball what he's going to give you and you're not even going to add up to what you commit to. So the good news is that you can't come to him on your own terms. There's no counter offers here. You cannot come to Jesus on your own terms. Here are the terms and conditions of your reconciliation with Christ on his terms. You offer nothing but your need. You aren't allowed to bring anything but your lack. You come with nothing 
And in him, you receive everything. Those are the terms and conditions. You come to him with the empty hands of faith, and he fills them with his heavenly riches. You give him your whole self, your whole soulish bucket of need, reserving nothing for yourself, because there really is nothing compared to him, and you get everything in return. Listen to this invitation from the Puritan pastor. This is how we'll close this morning. This is from the Puritan pastor, John Bunyan. This is what he says. Who may have this life, eternal life? I answer, poor, helpless, miserable sinners, particularly such that are willing to have it. He that thirsteth for it, he that is weary of his sins, he that is poor and needy, he that followeth after him and crieth for life. Upon what terms may he have this life? Freely, sinner, dost thou hear? Thou mayest have it freely. Let him come. Let him take the water of life freely, freely, without money or without price. Sinner, art thou thirsty? Art thou weary? Art thou willing? Come then and regard not your stuff. For all the good that is in Christ is offered to the coming sinner without money and without price. He has life to give away to such as want it and that hath not a penny to purchase it. And he will give it freely. Oh, what a blessed condition is the coming sinner in. So come, friends. Come in faith and prayer and be received by Jesus Christ. If you would let him... He will take your filthy robes of sin and defilement and he will replace them with his spotless robes of righteousness. But you may not have him as an accessory. You may not have him as an accessory, but you may have him as your savior and as your Lord. And that, that as it turns out, is infinitely better. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you do not coddle our selfish and indulgent request for what discipleship looks like. You don't coddle us in asking for less than infinite joy. You don't let us follow you in a flippant way where we don't count the cost and you don't let us get away with delayed obedience you confront us, not because you're mean, but because you want us to have infinite joy, which we have in you. And so I pray that my brothers and sisters here in Christ and I myself would not settle for anything less than fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore at your right hand. Help us to be entirely, wholeheartedly, intentionally devoted to following you wherever you would call us, to do whatever you would have us do, not to win your approval, not to win your love for us, but because you, by your grace, have purchased us and we belong to you. And you're a better Lord over our lives than we could be over our own. I ask that you build up this congregation now as you see fit. Would you humble the prideful? Would you exalt the humble? And would you instruct everyone here to have an increased affection for Christ. We ask all of these things to the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. We ask all of these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.